you would open to Matthew chapter 1, and we are studying the story of the birth of Christ in Matthew's gospel under the title, uh, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. And that is what the birth of Jesus accomplished. God conceived and formed and birthed through a human virgin. We, we often say the virgin birth. That's technically not correct. It should be the virgin conception. The birth is completely normal because Jesus was a regular human being. He was all God and all man, and he had to be both in order to die for us. But we're never going to talk anybody in orthodoxy into saying virgin conception. We're going to have to stay with the terminology. But we need to reflect, even though it's a mystery, we need to reflect on what is really happening. God with us so that he could represent rebellious humans like us and bring us back into union with our creator. That's what Christmas is about. That's what he did. That's what we're celebrating about. And it, it really, I, I love this time of year, not just because of all the things that we do and the family and the nostalgia and all of that, but because it, it's a great rhythm to have in the life of the church, to have a season where we really celebrate what the story is all about. You know, there's a word for uh, what's going on right now that everybody uses a lot this time of year, but like so many words that we use, we don't really stop to consider what that word actually is and, and what it means. And I'm talking here about the word Holiday. You ever heard that word around this time of year? Happy holidays. Are we going for home for the holidays? Uh, I really love the holidays. We use that word all the time, but uh, we, we often use it to refer to Christmas and New Year's because we don't take the trouble to say Christmas and New Year's, so we just use the word holiday. But maybe we haven't stopped to consider that the word holiday actually means holy day. That's actually a religious word, even though most people don't seem to use it as a religious word. It was called a holy day because on that day, or over the course of several days, God's people celebrated a story about something special that he did for them. And when they celebrated that story, they were not simply remembering the story, they were living it out through the symbols and the customs of that celebration, acting it out, identifying with that story, participating in it, as their own story. And so that it shaped how they viewed God and their relationship with him. And this really wasn't people's idea. This is God's idea. One of the first things God commanded his people when they formally constituted as a nation, this is when he's leading them out of Egypt and bringing them to Mount Sinai. One of the first things he commanded his people, even before they had left Egypt, was to eat the Passover on the night that the angel of death passed over them and saved them, rescued them from death while he judged others. What a tremendous story. And they had to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the posts and the lintels of the door, and they had to eat a meal with the unleavened bread and, and the lamb, and, and uh, they had to eat with, with their cloaks on, the men, with, with their staffs in hand, ready to go. And everything that, that God told them to do in this Passover was telling the story of God's deliverance. And then God told them that this was going to be a memorial for them, not a memory. That's different. A memory is just a memory about something God did a long time ago. This is a memorial, a remembrance 
a reenactment, if you will, of his deliverance. Because in the reenactment of that deliverance, they were participating in it. So that the story became their story. And that the same God they could continue to trust in to deliver them further. Later in the law, God established other holy days for his people, like the Feast of Booths or Tents or Tabernacles, in which his people reenacted the wilderness wandering by living in booths for a week or tents uh, so that they could focus on the fact that he's continued continue to remember his mercy in their lives. If you were a, a Jewish family with a lot of kids, this is probably not the, the festival the mom was looking forward to, you know, living in a tent with the kids all week. But, you know, and the dads are probably out talking, you know, all the time. And it, you can just imagine uh, what it would be going on, what would be going on for us today extrapolated into Jewish culture. That's what they did. And the kids probably thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And they got to do that all the time, once, once a year. This past Friday night, Jewish people all over the world even today, finished celebrating Hanukkah, which is a celebration actually not found in the Old Testament law. The, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah to tell the story of the rededication of the temple in December 164 B.C. Uh, Antiochus IV, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, if you know some of your uh, second temple history. Antiochus IV of Syria, who ruled over Israel at that time like a cruel tyrant, he did worse things to the Jews, if you want to read the history, than Hamas did to the Jews. He was a terrible tyrant. He ruled over them. But when he turned the temple into a temple to Zeus and sacrificed a sow on the altar, that's where people drew the line. And there was a revolt against him. And for three years, this battle raged, led by the Maccabean family. That's why you have Mac, uh, the Maccabees in, in the Apocrypha. It's, it's really the only history we have of this time period in our history. And after three years of guerrilla warfare and battle against the Syrians, the Jews retook Jerusalem and they recaptured their temple. But in order to cleanse the temple from Gentile desecration, the lamps had to burn for eight days and they only had enough oil for one day. So they lit the lamps out of faith, as the story goes, and the lamps miraculously burned for eight days. And each year there is an eight day holy day called Hanukkah, the word in, in Hebrew is dedication, to talk about or to celebrate the dedication of the temple. In fact, some of you know this, when Jesus spoke those familiar words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand, John 10, 22, uh, it says in that verse that it was during the winter time, during the Feast of Dedication. That's Han Hanukkah. It was not commanded in the law, but Jesus is on hand teaching during this festival in John's Gospel, chapter 10. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is often seen updating the story that was being performed in the celebrations. As the people celebrated the work of God at Hanukkah, there is Jesus pointing them to the true work of himself and the Father who would give them eternal life. And on the great day of the feast, of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which was the day they performed the water ceremony that relived God's provision of water for them in the wilderness. This is when Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And in a little while in our time of worship this morning, we're going to participate in another story that Jesus retold. 
Because when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples the night he was betrayed, he changed two of the important symbols of that Passover meal. He updated the story. The unleavened bread that was meant to symbolize the separation from Egypt, Jesus took this bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took a piece and passed it around and everybody took a piece of it. That all meant something. It talked about their union with him and with one another. And after that, they ate the meal and then Jesus lifted the cup that symbolized the joy and gladness at the feast and transferred that symbol as well. He said, this is now the new covenant in my blood, which meant that he was about to die to bring the salvation that God had promised for centuries past. And the story that Jesus symbolized that night before he went to die for us is a story that continues to this day, that we continue to tell and identify with, especially at the table, but also as we share the gospel. And it should continue to shape our lives. When we we trust Christ for salvation, it's not just an act in the past. It's something that transforms us for the rest of our lives. So when it comes to Christmas time, it is a holy day. It's a time to tell a story. And we open the first page of the New Testament, Matthew in his gospel begins telling this story. Now, there's so many ways that the world celebrates Christmas. We're aware of that. So many ways that distract from or overwrites the true story. Everything from Santa Claus and his reindeer to Frosty the Snowman to the elf on the shelf and all kinds of concerts and gatherings where we uh, get very tired and, and, and we eat too much. And, and these, these are not necessarily bad traditions at all. In fact, they can inspire great family memories. But the stories and symbols that go with many of these traditions really have nothing to do with the true story. And that is why it is even more imperative that we allow God himself to tell us the story through his evangelist, Matthew, and shape our imaginations so that we embrace the story through faith and identify with the story. Because when we believe on the Jesus of this story, when we trust in his salvation work through the cross and the resurrection, this story becomes our story, Matthew begins the entire New Testament with the words, the book of the genealogy or the Genesis, as we've seen, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the story of Jesus, the son of God, as Matthew will go on to call him, coming into the world to rescue the world. And if you will remember from the first couple of weeks we immersed in Matthew's genealogy, I'm pushing back against the idea that the Christmas story is a self-contained narrative that is just about the birth of Jesus. It's not. The story that Matthew is telling in the opening chapters of the gospel is part of a larger story. In fact, it's the climax of the larger story that has been told throughout history. And Matthew will expand on the climax throughout his gospel as he tells not only of the birth of Christ, but of the ministry of Christ and of the death of Christ and of the resurrection of Christ and even what Jesus foretold about the coming of Christ and what we are supposed to do with this coming, the commissioning of Christ for his followers to go into the world and make more disciples who will follow Christ. But this is all the climax of the story that had been building up for centuries, for generations to this point. Salvation through a deliverer was promised through Abraham 
as the father of a nation, and then through David as the father of a line of kings. And Matthew traces the lineage of Abraham, the father of a nation, and David, the father of a royal line, right onto Jesus, the promised king, the climax of the story. And in the centuries and centuries represented in the genealogy, the world languished in darkness, in desperate need of someone to rescue them until the light of the world appeared. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. That's the climax of the ages. That the New Testament thinks of this as the end. We don't have to wonder when we're entering the last times. We're in the last times because Jesus is here. And he's the climax. And this is how the writers of the New Testament conceived of it. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, at the climax of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is our story too. We're at the climax. For we know intuitively, even if we came to Christ at an early age, that every one of us is hopelessly lost without Christ. And when we placed our faith in the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection, we became part of this rescue operation at the climax of human history. Now, what we've seen so far and what we've studied in this genealogy is that Matthew has taken careful steps to contrive three lists of names so that they come out to three sections of 14 names each. And when Matthew says in, in Matthew 1:17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, Matthew doesn't mean that in the providence of God, in the line of Christ, it all came out neatly through history into these exact three sections of 14 names each. What he means is that this is how he has designed his version of the genealogy as he's collected. We, we could take, by the way, at scripture and see how Matthew has taken from various genealogies in the Old Testament. As he's taken them and put them together, this is what he has come out with. This is his plan. This is his presentation of it. Why three groups of 14? Well, we can't say for certain. One common thesis is based on the name David. In Hebrew, each letter of the alphabet is worth a certain numerical amount. This is, this is with their counting system. So if you add up the letters of the name David, which only have three letters, and you know, the name only has three letters in Hebrew, it adds up to 14. And one of the major themes of Matthew's gospel is Jesus, the Davidic king. Another theory is something I mentioned uh, last week or the week before, I can't remember, that what Matthew has given us is not really three sets of 14, but actually six sets of seven. And this would anticipate a seventh set of seven in the mind of any Jew that would be all of those who would put their faith in Jesus, they're the next generation that come after Jesus Christ. You have all of the generations leading up to Jesus of those who anticipated his coming and all the generations leading away from Jesus who have embraced him as savior and have become part of the story. But as much as this might fascinate some of us, the biggest takeaway is simply that we know Matthew is being very particular about this genealogy as he contrives these lists of names. So when we see something unusual or curious in these lists, we should take special notice. Last week, we saw how Matthew skips three generations of kings 
at a time of, in, in, in their history of intense idolatry that threatened to end the Davidic line. But God was faithful to, to his promise and preserved David's line leading to the Messiah even when it was hanging by a thread. Even when he, God had every right to cut it off. But today I want to call attention to something else in this genealogical storyline. I want to focus for a few moments on the names of the women that we see in the genealogy. Do you notice when you read the genealogies of scripture that the mothers who bore all these children are rarely mentioned? Okay, don't shoot the messenger, okay? I mean, we're all reading the same, the same document, okay? But there are all mothers who, who bore those children. You moms know what, what work that is. And yet the men are the ones who are mentioned. That's not because the mothers were unappreciated, but because the genealogy was based upon the father's bloodline. That was the important thing in the genealogy. So when the women are mentioned, it is always for a special reason. As soon as you start reading Matthew's genealogy, names of famous Jewish women should immediately come to mind. Abraham was the husband of Sarah. Isaac was the husband of Rebekah. Jacob was the husband of Rachel and Leah. And you know the story of how much uh, he loved Rachel and uh, yet he, he had to be married to Leah. He was tricked into it. And then he got to marry Rachel after that. And yet Leah is the one who produced the son, Judah, who would come eventually to bear the line of David. But none of these women that Genesis says so much about are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. Rather, we meet Tamar in the list in verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And in verse 5, we find Rahab. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And we meet Ruth in verse 5. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And we're reminded of Bathsheba in the second half of verse 6, although Matthew never uses her name. Instead, he reminds us of David's adultery when he says David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And at the crescendo of the list, of course, in verse 16, we find Mary. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Five women in this list. Why five? Why these five? Because the genealogy definitely takes on a certain quality with these women rather than others. What is Matthew trying to tell us? Well, there are various ways that the Bible interpreters through the centuries have explained the presence of the women in Matthew's genealogy. Here's one interpretation. These women are included in the genealogy, some say, because they represent human depravity. In fact, each of them was involved or suspected of, in some way, sexual sin. For example, the story of Tamar and Judah we read about it in Genesis 38. Without going into great detail, Tamar's husband, Ur, was so wicked that God killed him before he and Tamar had any children. So as the custom was in that time, and later it was part of the law, Ur's brother, Onan, was supposed to take Tamar as his wife and have a child with her for his brother. But Onan would not cooperate, and God killed him too. 
So Judah told Tamar, you know, wait at your father's house. When my third son, Shelah, is of age, he can marry you. But that's a promise Judah never kept. So finally, Tamar was tired of waiting for the promise of a son, and she disguised herself as a prostitute and tempted Judah himself. So she became with child by her father-in-law, Judah. But Judah still didn't know that the prostitute was Tamar. So in verse 24 of Genesis 38, it says about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Again, think about it. Tamar is literally carrying in her womb, even though it was through immorality, she is carrying in her womb the seed of the Davidic line that crescendos in the Messiah. And all of the things that Judah could have said, we find that he says something shockingly self-righteous. Bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite. And one commentator said they, they think this is a turning point in Judah's mind because of what happens next. Tamar had cunningly taken Judah's effects. So as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Judah identified them and probably gulped big. They were his own. So he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalat. It's one of the strangest, redneckiest stories in the Bible. I mean, really? I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And yet it is a part of the narrative that leads to the coming of Christ. But what about the other women? Well, Rahab was a prostitute by profession. In fact, she is referred to as a prostitute half the time she's mentioned in the Old Testament. And in Hebrews and James, she's simply called Rahab the prostitute. Nobody ever would forget that this was her profession. However, the only reason Rahab is so well known in the pages of scripture is not because of her sin, but because of her faith. She's no longer a prostitute. She's a woman who had been a prostitute and had turned to embrace the God of Israel. And Ruth was a pagan Moabitess from a cult that practiced child sacrifice. Moab was the nation that caused Israel to fall into gross immorality at Baal Peor in the wilderness. Elimelech, Elimelech should have never moved his family to, to Moab. Elimelech's name, it means my God is king. And he was not really living up to his namesake when he would not trust the Lord and stay in Bethlehem, the house of food, uh, during, during the famine. He went to Moab so that his sons would eventually marry pagan daughters. But again, the reason we know about Ruth is because she turned from paganism to embrace the God of Israel. Naomi, as we've, as we've always, already seen this morning from, from John's reading, uh, uh, John Rogers' reading of Ruth, uh, tried to send her back to her people and her culture, but she famously answers, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. And verse 18 says that she was determined in this decision. And after this, Ruth shows herself to be faithful. So what we have in Rahab and Ruth is at best a former prostitute and a former pagan. 
And that could be said of anyone who comes to God by faith. Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Bathsheba was complicit in the act of adultery with David. It's true. I mean, David initiated the sin. We, we think of it, the story in the scripture, we think of it as his sin and we should. But Bathsheba did not have to go along with it. And again, the way she is referred to in the genealogy, the wife of Uriah, it's intended to remind us that she was not rightfully David's wife. And of course, Mary is vindicated of any wrongdoing because Matthew affirms that she was a virgin. So does Matthew include these women because they represent human depravity? Well, not only do we see that you cannot insist on that across the board, but if Matthew is trying to highlight depravity, why doesn't he mention Athaliah, the wife of Jotham in verse eight? We talked about her last week. Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter, who successfully murdered all but one grandchild by the grace of God so that she could seize the throne. And have you ever considered this? If Athaliah is one of the mothers in the line of Christ, then the blood of her parents, Ahab and Jezebel, is also part of that line. And this is not to mention the wicked kings whose names appear in the genealogy. The truth is, no matter where you look in the genealogy, you remember that Jesus was born into a sinful world. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When we study Matthew's genealogy, we find that God may not have made a genealogy like we would have made it. He did not make a genealogy that is a pure bloodline of people who were always acting righteously, in which Jesus was the climax. I mean, that might make better sense to us, but it wouldn't be God coming to save humanity. Instead, Jesus was born into a family tree that was sometimes dysfunctional and sinful and even depraved. He came into families like ours. He came into families like ours because he came to identify with the dysfunctional and sinful and depraved and to rescue them. Because when we come to him as our savior by God's grace through the spirit, we become related to him and Hebrews 2.11 says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. But there's another reason that some have suggested that Matthew includes these women. Human depravity may have something to do with it. But another reason is these women represent Gentile inclusion. That is God's plan to rescue not just the Jews, but all the world because of the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, God's covenant was with the nation of Israel, but his plan all along was to rescue the entire world through Israel. And we see these women being included in the line of Christ. They are the only representatives of the nations outside of Israel. And once again, this thought is very encouraging to us, especially since I imagine almost all of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles our ancestors may not have been biologically part of God's chosen people, 
But in the mercy of God, when we embraced Jesus Christ by faith and became related to him, as the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we became a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We Gentiles are included by God's grace at the climax of redemption history because of the coming of Jesus. But is this in total what we see when we look at the women in Matthew's list? Uh, Tamar may have been Canaanite. Genesis 38.2 says that Judah's wife Shua was Canaanite. But the text doesn't comment on Tamar's ethnicity. We could maybe assume she's Canaanite. The Bible is clear that late Rahab was Canaanite and Ruth was Moabite. But Bathsheba is never said to be Hittite. She's married to Uriah the Hittite, but Bathsheba is a very Hebrew name. And of course, Mary is Jewish. And one other thing to consider, Matthew does not include Solomon's wife, Nama, which might not be a name very familiar to you unless you're doing your Bible reading through the year uh, and you come across it. Solomon's wife, Nama, bore him Rehoboam in the line of Christ. And Nama is identified every time she is mentioned in the Bible as Nama the Ammonite. So if Matthew is trying to include the women because of their Gentile ancestry, the wife of Solomon's mom was a missed opportunity. So is there a truly definitive answer to the question, why does Matthew name certain women in this genealogy? Because both of the very common answers don't really fit all across the board. Well, I'll see if this makes sense to you. I, I think that we can actually borrow ideas from uh, reason number one and reason number two and observe that each of these women represent God's unexpected, gracious, merciful providence. None of the women that Matthew names should have been in the family tree leading to the savior of the world. None of them. None of them should have been able to have those children, especially Mary. We might say from our perspective, their inclusion is all so random. Judah was married to Shua. He had sons of his own. Why is it that God chose to extend the promise to rescue the world through Tamar after her shameful behavior? rather than the normal way of Judah's wife and his descendants from Shua. And why were Rahab and her family alone rescued from the destruction of Jericho? And how did Solomon of the tribe of Judah, from one of the families who survived slavery in Egypt, happen to marry this woman from Jericho, even though she had been a prostitute? If anything, you would expect that a Jew would not want to marry a prostitute Canaanite. That, that was in the destruction of Jericho. But God rescues her from death and places her in the family line of Christ. And this random act of his grace is so unlooked for that Rahab finds herself in Hebrews 11 and in James 2 as a person of faith who is justified. And what of Ruth? Reared as a pagan Moabite girl, miles from Bethlehem, in the country of Moab, where Elimelech, was raising his two boys because he had left Bethlehem Judah and had gone over there. And, and be, really because of his lack of trust, 
And this random Moabite girl, Ruth, ends up in that family and she comes back to Bethlehem with Naomi and just so happens to glean in a field by a guy named Boaz who is a kinsman of Naomi of all things. And through a series of events no one would have expected, Ruth becomes the great grandmother of David the king. And when we think of Bathsheba, the whole story of how she became David's wife and Solomon's mother is wrong from the very beginning. It's a story of adultery and murder and judgment. It's one of the most biting stories of scripture and, and Nathan's confrontation of David is, is so well known and so confrontational and humbles this king. And yet when Bathsheba's second son Solomon was born, 2 Samuel 12, 24 says, the Lord loved him. The Lord himself chose Solomon, bringing life and hope and salvation out of death and sin and judgment. It never should have happened. Never could anyone have seen this coming. So we have five women in the line of Christ, each with a special story that shows a unique and amazing way that God continued the great story that would climax in Christ. And each of these instances serve to highlight the greatest imaginable example of God's providence that he would call a virgin from Nazareth to bear the savior of the world. It's no wonder that Joseph is bewildered and disappointed at Mary and having to do the right thing and annul the betrothal for what appeared to be immorality on Mary's part. Because who would have imagined that God would have moved in this miraculous way in this little humble town of Nazareth, far from important Jerusalem. So in verse 20 of Matthew 1, God tells Joseph, the son of David, a descendant of these random events that led to this moment. He said, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived as her is, is from the Holy Spirit. God is doing something completely in his plan, but to us completely random, so unexpected, just like he had been doing all along throughout the history. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Savior, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And how God became our Emmanuel was in a way that no one could have imagined. This is our story. This is your story. If you have placed your faith in the son of God, our Emmanuel, in, in the same way that God acted in our story in the past, faithfully continuing the genealogy of Emmanuel through sometimes unforeseen, sometimes sinful events, through unexpected wombs. So he now today continues to act in our lives. He, he's not changing the way he's dealing with us. This is our story. Because there is a sense in which none of us should be here. Our inclusion in the family of God appears from our viewpoint completely random. Some of us feel this, I think, more keenly than others. We, we look at our family and our history and we think, how did we ever find Christ? 
I was looking with my parents recently at some of our oldest pictures of my family. This is when I was, I showed you a couple of weeks ago when my great, great grandfather, we were looking at all the pictures of, that we have of, of the oldest pictures of my family. And my dad reminded me of how staunchly Catholic we were just a couple of generations ago. And my dad said he still remembers how hopeless the funerals felt and how the alcohol flowed and flowed afterwards because everybody was trying to forget. And how his own father, my grandfather, was so stern and no nonsense about everything. And suddenly, God saved my grandfather out of nowhere because somebody shared the gospel with him. And the family tree of the Lord Jesus continued on in my family only through the sheer grace of God. And all of you have stories like that. But you know, we sometimes forget that God is gracious like this in what appears to be random acts of grace, even though there is no reason for it. Because we look at our lives at time, I think, with great disappointment at how we've wandered from God, or maybe we've committed some sin in the past and we just, it's just still bugging us. We regret this. Or the way we thought things were going to turn out is not the way they actually turned out. And we're sometimes think, tempted to think that, that God is, is through with us or that we're just gonna have to settle for the second best or that he doesn't quite love us the same. And we need to be reminded sometimes that nothing could be further from the truth. That God still loves us like he loves his only son, Jesus. The fact is none of us would be anywhere apart from God's grace. And he is just as willing as he ever was to draw us near and to walk with us and to lead us in gracious paths when we turn back to him and cling to him by faith. So as we continue to reflect upon the coming of Christ through the Christmas story this season, let's not forget that one thing is true. Matthew's story, our story, teaches us that God will always do surprising things for his people. And he does it to promote his glory. And he does it to draw us to himself. And he does it always remaining faithful to his promises. Father, we're so grateful.